sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand. Stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. Put some respect on my name. Sick like a rain, click and I bang. Y'all gon' remember the name. Y'all gon' remember the name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we have got on a brilliant guest. He is a consultant cardiologist. He is also a truth seeker and a truth speaker, and you know we need more of those these days. And this is Dr. Asim Malhotra. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Zubi. Great to connect with the kindred spirit. Absolutely. Been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Uh, so, Dr. Malhotra, for people who are not familiar with you, please tell them a little bit about yourself. Sure. So, I am a qualified doctor since 2001. Um, I subspecialized uh, to become a cardiologist, initially interventional cardiology, which for laypersons, uh, they probably best understand as keyhole heart surgery. I shifted a lot of my attention and time now towards prevention. And I'm also a public health advocate. So I am trying to um, you know, uh, understand and then influence health policy to help uh, you know, improve population health, if you like. So that's where I've been focusing my attention. And two big areas I've been working on in the last decade have been really trying to get to the roots of the problems of, of diet-related disease, um, more specifically the obesity epidemic, but also um, uh, highlighting the harms of an over-medicated population. And just to give your listeners some idea about this, you know, it's, it's estimated that the third most common cause of death globally now after heart disease and cancer is prescribed medications because of side effects, which are largely preventable. So I'm really on a mission, if you like, to first and foremost, be the best possible doctor I can be for my patients to improve their outcomes, their mental and physical health. And at the same time, to ensure that we can also do that on the population level as well. That statistic about uh, prescription drugs and side effects being the third most common cause of death, where, where is that from? That's a... I, I yeah. read a lot of statistics, and that's one that I, I haven't heard before. What's that from? Yeah, so that's an analysis done by um, Professor Peter Gersher, who was one of the co-founders of the prestigious independent Cochrane Collaboration. And he published this several years ago. And a few people have contested it, but what it at, le at least highlights, Zuby, is that over-medication, whether, whether it's third or fourth or fifth as a cause of, of, of death, it's a big, big problem. So, um, yeah, that's where that comes from. That's the thing that was published in the British Medical Journal. I understand that. When, when you say um, over-medication, is that simply people taking too many medicines or is that yeah. people being prescribed the wrong things? It's a combination, actually. So it's people ultimately taking too many, too many medications where the harms of the medications ultimately outweigh the benefits. And then it's a combination of facts that we call multiple medications, which, you know, there was, there's not, not been many good clinical trials that are done on polypharmacy. So that's people who are taking several medications at once. And a lot of the problems are due to drug interactions that are dangerous. But when you get to the roots of it, one of the solutions forward, Zuby, is actually people understanding, and this sounds, may sound strange, what the actual benefits those medications are doing for them on an individual basis. And when you fully inform people, and I can give you some examples shortly. Most people tend to choose less treatments in terms of medications and have less operations. And ultimately, what that means is there's less harm. It doesn't uh, have a negative effect on their outcomes, whether it's treatments for things like blood pressure or cholesterol or whatever. 
Um, and then, of course, it will end up saving a lot of money in the system where it can be diverted to more important things. And of course, one of the issues which is parallel to the overmedicated population is lack of attention to very evidence-based, effective, empowering lifestyle changes, which not only will very likely improve your longevity, but they improve your quality of life as well. And that's something that most of these medications don't do, Zuby, because if you, you know, even if they're having a small benefit in the long term in terms of, say, reducing a heart attack or prolonging your life, most of these tablets that we, you know, are managing lifestyle-related diseases with can only make your quality of life worse if you're unlucky enough to experience side effects, which are a lot more common than we have been led to believe. And of course, the roots of that is what is the information, where is the information coming from on which we as doctors are making clinical decisions for patients. And that is mostly coming from um, drug industry sponsored trials where you know those industries primary motives to make profit, not to give you the best treatment. So I've spent time understanding the root causes of these system failures that have such a negative effect downstream on my patients uh, and it's just wrong. Well, everything that you're saying there sounds very sensible and logical and moral and ethical. And therefore, in this day and age, you must get a lot of pushback <laughs> yeah. for, for all the above. Because in the medical world, and I, I say this as a, someone with multiple family members who are doctors, my, my dad's a doctor, my brother's a doctor, my brother's wife, several um, right. aunts and uncles in my life have been. I, I, I think the healthcare industry, obviously, well, let me not say, let me not say the industry, um, doctors, nurses, people who work in that sector are absolutely necessary. Um, we're both massive health advocates. Of course, we are all very thankful for modern medicine and access to surgeries and antibiotics. And there, there are so many wonderful things. However, a lot of people, and I think an increasing number, are recognizing and are concerned about some of the pharmaceutical drugs that are being pushed out there and the uh, lobbying that can go on with politicians and these, uh, these pharmaceutical companies and so on. There's a lot of conflicts of interest. Um, and so with all that said, you are one of the few prominent doctors out there, not just in the UK, but I would say in, in the West as a whole, who is willing to recognize these conflicts of interests and who genuinely seems to not just be trying to, you know, make, make a quick buck off of pushing a pharmaceutical product or something, but actually being transparent and telling the truth and genuinely trying to look after people's health, even if that means less profits for certain drug companies. So I don't even know exactly what my question here is, but what how did you I'm, I'm curious to know what it is that drives you in particular to speak out on this in a way that the vast majority will not yeah sure Zuby. so you've you've actually covered a lot of the major issues there um with that comment and that question and before i answer that specifically uh, you're absolutely right we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here you know there's a lot of great things we do in medicine the problem is it's about the excesses and how can we improve the system so that people get the best deal? Um, and it's also about understanding the net effect of the so-called medical industrial complex on society. And unfortunately, um, it's heading in the wrong direction because of these excesses. So for example, 
you know, some interesting information for people. In the UK, since 2010, over the past decade plus, we've had a stalling in life expectancy and more and more people living longer with chronic diseases. In other words, our health is going backwards mentally and physically. In the US, the situation is very similar. In fact, I, I understand recently there is some data suggesting that in the US in the last few years, there's been a reduction in life expectancy. So I mean, we have to understand what's going on here at the root. Um, for me personally, I go back to the, you know, the, the way I was brought up. You know, it's all, I had two parents that were doctors, you know, like you. Um, you know, they went into medicine because they genuinely wanted to contrib contribute to society, serve the community. That's something that's been instilled in me as a kid. Um, I come from Indian parents, Hindu background. Um, and uh, it's also, it also means having coming from a place of values, but also coming from a place of values means that you have to have courage to speak truth to power when you need to do that. And that's something that was passed down to me. So I combined certainly my, you know, for me, I noticed certainly over, uh, you know, a 10 year period, at least since I qualified in 2001 as a doctor, in my own interactions with patients in the healthcare system, working in NHS, which is, you know, very high turnover, very high demand, is that there was this visceral sense and observation that people were coming in more miserable, more sick, more medications. Uh, and for me, and also the lack of attention to lifestyle, a lot of it was related to the observation that we know about, that there's a big problem with people suffering from um, weight-related issues. Certainly in the UK, 60% uh, of the population are overweight or obese. A third of children by the time they hit 11 are in the same category. In the US, the situation is probably slightly worse. So I think there was a deep understanding from my perspective quite early on that we know that good health, you know, what, what, can, what is considered good health in terms of mental and physical health ultimately is determined by your lifestyle. And also understanding certainly that the medications that we are prescribing people for things like blood pressure and diabetes and cholesterol have very marginal effects at best. And it isn't about a yes or no that we should be all against all medications. Is one of the ways to combat this problem is to um, just engage in informed consent, break down the numbers for an, a better understanding for doctors and patients about what these medications are doing. So there's a very simple um, and elegant analytical framework that I use in practicing medicine called the evidence-based medicine triad. So we wanna be evidence-based, we wanna be ethical. Those are the two things. Um, that are always in the back of my mind when it comes to managing my patients. What does that mean? Well, there are three components to that triad, which are designed together and synergistically to improve patient outcomes. So just think about the patient or yourself or a family member or whatever. What does that mean? So relieve suffering, manage risks and treat illness. And we do that from one, using our clinical experience, our clinical knowledge, our expertise, our clinical intuition that we develop you know, over time. The best available evidence whether it's a drug intervention, whether it's a surgical intervention, whether it's even a lifestyle intervention. And last but not least, Zuby, which is really crucial, and probably the most important, is taking into consideration individual patient preferences and values. And you can only do that if you're engaging in true informed consent. The problem is the two of those components are off, and of course that then feeds the third component. The two components that are off are the fact that the best available evidence, unfortunately, has been massively corrupted by commercial influence. So just from a conceptual point of view, Zibi, if you think if a doctor is making a clinical decision on biased information, then at best it's gonna get sub you're gonna get suboptimal outcomes for your patients and at worst you're gonna do harm. 
And then if you're not even telling the patient um, in true informed consent ways about the benefit and harms of a medication, in what we call absolute terms, and we'll come on to that shortly, then the patient is not being fully informed. Um, and then for me, that then, you know, really um, undermines ethical evidence-based medicine. So this very simple, elegant analytical framework actually can explain a lot with what's wrong with the healthcare system, because then you go into the root causes. So let's talk about best available evidence. Why is it being corrupted? Well, just to give you some examples, again, some big headline figures here. I don't wanna exaggerate it, but the, you know, this is it verbatim. Um, somebody who I consider to be a Stephen Hawking-like figure in medicine. His name is John Ioannidis. He's a professor of medicine and epidemiology at Stanford. He is the most cited medical researcher in the world. What that means is he has published more medical journal articles which have had impact and been referenced by other people than anyone in the world by orders of magnitude. He's considered a genius in terms of his mathematical skills. He was a gold medalist from Greece, you know, I think in Athens. Um, and he's very, very well respected. And he published a paper in 2005 in one of the medical journals called PLOS One. And it was actually entitled this, and this is the most cited medical journal article ever. It's called Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. And what he means by that is ultimately many, many research, a lot of research that's done actually either is poor quality, so not necessarily because of any nefarious intentions, but the other, the other issue is that the drug company sponsored studies, which is actually most of the studies that doctors make clinical decisions on now, will almost invariably exaggerate the benefits and safety of their products. So already you're now seeing a shift towards a perception of, of an intervention, a drug intervention, being more beneficial than it truly is, and also underplaying the harms, right? So you can already see how the balance can shift towards getting an over-medicated population. And if you look at that, if you take that further back, Kazubi, this is the big where the system failure really occurs. I, I'm a root cause guy, and the reason I, I'm a root cause guy, not just in trying to manage my patients in the best way possible, in understanding their disease and what's driving it, et cetera, is again, conceptually, unless you address the root cause of a problem, any solution that you offer is going to be flawed. And when one looks into the root cause of this and go, goes upstream, you realize that the, we have, we've had greater and greater unchecked, both visible and invisible power over our lives from big, powerful corporations, in this case, big pharma, but you can also apply it to the food industry. And that has really been something that's been growing over the last few decades. But their primary motive Zuby, what drives them is they are profit-making legal entities. They are not there to give you the best treatment. And the problem is they have captured everybody, the politicians, medical establishment bodies, the regulators, even influencing the law, unregulated activity. And people are getting, you know, um, as a result, our patients are suffering, doctors are suffering. And it's for me, unless we address that at the root, and that may mean changes in the law, which in my view are unscientific and undemocratic, when you've got drug companies that conduct trials, but hold on to the raw data, we're supposed to trust their results. And then the regulators that are supposed to regulate them are getting paid by the very companies they're regulating. So for example, the FDA gets 65% of its funding from pharma. The regulator in our country, in the UK, the MHRA gets 86% of the funding from pharma. And I've come up with this term, which I know sounds controversial, but I think is evidence-based, is not always, but often these drug companies, as, as entities, not pointing at individuals here, as a legal entity, in order to make profit, they behave in psychopathic ways. That means, you know, callous unconcern for the safety of others, deceitfulness, 
conning others for profit, right? And that actually comes from a forensic psychologist who was involved in the original definition of psychopath when he describes his corporation. So I call this a psychopathic determinants of health. So when one gets to the root of the problem and we address it at the root and, and everybody knows about it, then I think we can then start offering solutions moving forward. Wow. Yeah, there's there's a lot there. I like that term. What was that term used? Psych, psychopathic the, determinants the of psychopathic health? Psychopathic determinants of health. Yeah, yeah that and it's, it's an, it's an ev it's yeah sorry it's an evolution from something called the commercial determinants of health mm. which is defined which is a really nice way of describing how these you know these big corporations work it's strategies and approaches adopted by the private sector to promote products and choices that are detrimental to health and mm. the psychopathic is just taking that a little bit further yeah and i would say that right now this is at an all-time high it's at an all-time high with the big food companies and the entire fast food industry and all the subsidies that go to farmers that are putting all the seed oils and corn syrups everywhere. It's a huge problem in the USA, actually. It's um, one thing I notice, uh, I spend more time in the States than I do in the UK these days. And one thing that always just shocks me there is just how rampant the, the stranglehold of pharmaceuticals and fast food is on that nation. Like the, the UK has its issues, but the UK pales in comparison to the US. The U and, and most Americans don't realize it because most Americans don't leave the USA. A lot of them don't even know, for example, I, that, I mean, all these uh, pharmaceutical ads on the TVs and in the magazines and so on, they don't even realize that that is not even legal in most of the world, you know, ask your, ask your doctor for this drug, ask your doctor for that drug. We're going to list out 500 different potential side effects in three seconds, uh, which include death, by the way, but we're going to say it so quickly that you can't hear it. It's just everywhere on all the screens, all the, it's like you're just bombarded with it. Billboards as you're driving around, it's just big pharma, big food, big pharma, big food, and injury lawyers. It's like those three just have this stranglehold on the biggest country um, in the Western world. And it's, yeah. it's, it's shocking. And, and you see the effects of it. I mean, the, the, the amount of drug abuse in that country, the, I mean, over, over 100,000 overdose deaths per year and another 100,000 from people overdosing on alcohol. I think in, um, I was in California not long ago and I saw on a billboard that I think one in, I think it said one in three deaths in California under the age of 30 is fentanyl, specifically fentanyl. Just that one drug is one in three of the causes of death. Of course, you hear about the, the opioid crisis. It's, yeah. um, it, it's, it's weird, it's strange, and it's kind of yeah. scary because it's like we've made all this progress over the last several decades and certainly over the last century in so many ways, yes. but then we've reached this point where when it comes to health, when it comes to obesity, diabetes, um, mental health problems, depression, self-harm, suicide, yeah. um, everything of the, the mind and the body, it's, as you said, it's like, okay, we're, we're, we're now backtracking, right? It's like people were yeah, healthier. Yeah, regressing. Yeah, in the, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, I would argue, I mean, people were objectively, by many measures, healthier, and the trend seems to be continuing, and that's very concerning. And then, of course, we have, uh, you know, of course, we have to come to the elephant in the room of the whole COVID-19 pandemic situation, 
where this all just really came to a head on a global scale and all these issues that you mentioned, this, um, tell, tell me that term again. Give, give me, what was that? The psychopathic. psychopathic determinants of health. Psychopathic determinants of health, the conflicts of interest between yeah. these politicians and bureaucrats and lawmakers and the pharmaceutical companies, uh, doctors being afraid to speak out, the rise in censorship, big tech getting involved and kicking people off platforms for even asking certain questions, even many things that or making statements that turned out actually to be true. Um, yeah. it, it just really came to a head in, in a way I've, I've never, I've, I've certainly never witnessed anything like what we witnessed from 2020 to, I mean, let's say early to mid 2022 when it started to calm down a little bit. It's still not over as we know, but, um, it was just a very true, it was just a very, very crazy time there. So what were, what were your thoughts going on as we went into, let's say from early, early 2020? Yeah. Um, so Zuby, just, just to sort of pick up on, before I go into that, your previous points, you're absolutely right. Just very quickly, I think all of this is linked. So you talk about, you know, the problems with drug abuse and addiction and suicides and those levels being very, very high in the, in the U.S., this is all linked to a regression in mental and physical health, right? And it's but and, and also one of the things I say, I think we need to marry the fact that you can't have optimal mental health without having optimal physical health, and you can't have optimal physical health without having optimal mental health. So they're both they're both related. And of course, if society is regressing in their mental and physical health, then you will get automatically more and more people turning to drug abuse, right? You know, um, trying to drown their misery and their pain with taking drugs, and then they get addicted to it. And the same, these addictions are also applied to ultra processed food. And the food industry now know there's a lot of evidence emerging that a lot of these foods that we eat that become the normal staple diet of Americans now, more than 50% of the calories in the UK and probably more than that in the US, come from these ultra processed foods, which are mixtures of, as you say, seed oils and sugar and, and um, refined carbs and all that kind of stuff. They, and, and additives, additives and preservatives, they have probably engineered them to become at least mildly addictive. And addiction is the opposite of free will. And you can imagine that's just caused havoc uh, on us uh, physically and mentally. And then you look at the big corporations that have a lot of control over these without naming any companies, but you know, often they will pay their production workers so, you know, low, low wages. And if you're in a low pay, low control, um, high demand job, Zuby, that's effectively a death sentence. What it does to you mentally, physically is awful. So the whole thing gets compounded, right? So, uh, you know, we have to address the, these issues uh, head on at the root. And I think that so many of these problems in society we have today will be overcome. But yes, coming back to your specific question on the COVID pandemic. So I think that's actually highlighted the worst of the system on, on, this, on a scale unimaginable. Um, coming into 2020, uh, one of the things I, I, I was one of the first people certainly to speak out in the UK and I think even globally, I was able to get a mainstream news to, to make, you know, highlight the clear link between um, people having adverse outcomes from COVID and, uh, um, you know, um, uh, once you exclude age, being linked to excess body fat and, and, and overweight and obesity. And the reason I made a lot of noise around it in the mainstream and wrote articles was because I know from my own prior research and my own practice and what I've advocated for, and this is a good news, that you can rapidly improve your health markers linked to heart disease risk, of course, but also to the immune system just within a few weeks of changing one's diet, Zuby, just within a few weeks. And that was lacking. 
at the beginning of the uh, during the pandemic i said why are we not having this opportunity to improve the people people's health we've got this fast pandemic of covid exploiting a slow pandemic of chronic disease but actually there's something we can all do and the government should have come out and hammered it home daily on a daily basis avoid the junk foods avoid ultra processed foods eat real food this will give you a very good chance or a better chance um at being resilient to covid if you ever get covid so that's where things started for me and and i en un ended up um getting asked to advise the secretary for health matt hancock in the uk at the time on what we should do to combat the uh, problem of obesity. And I said, listen, we've got very, a similar situation arising here with these ultra processed foods as we had with tobacco. You know, the US, I think was one of the leaders, if not the leaders in the Western world in tobacco control. And they did that after decades of um, the tobacco industry fighting back when there was first links made between smoking and lung cancer, where they denied the link, they confused the public, um, and they even, you know, bought the loyalty of conflicted scientists to publish articles in journals to distract people, Zuby, that mm -hmm. smoking was the cause of lung cancer or heart disease. They, they, and, also, and the, they, they also recruited physicians for the ads themselves. Oh. I mean, anyone can go on Google now. And if you look, if you search for old tobacco ads from a few decades ago, you can find, uh, you know, three out of five doctors smoke you know, camel cigarettes or physicians recommend this cigarette because it's smoother or it's crazy. It's crazy. Oh, and we, and you're absolutely right. And we saw a parallel happening during the pandemic. And I'm sure it was similar in the US where I remember I tweeted that um, during the height of the pandemic, when we already knew there was a very good link between not just obesity and uh, poor outcomes from COVID, but even in non-diabetics, a high blood glucose. So from one meal, potentially could cause a situation where you were at more risk of having a uh, pour out from COVID if you caught COVID. And they, one of the London teaching hospitals proudly put out a tweet saying that they were getting, um, I think something like a thousand free Krispy Kreme donuts for the staff. And I thought this isn't sending the right message, right? So, um, and this is again, you're right, parallels with tobacco. You know, they use doctors as a, a branding opportunity. You know, um, that's what the junk food industry do. And in fact, there's another topic to discuss here is our hospitals themselves have become, you know, uh, the food environment in hospitals is atrocious. 75% of the food purchased in hospitals is essentially junk food. Yeah. When the people who are coming in are coming predominantly with diet-related disease. And what it does is subconsciously it legitimizes the acceptability of those foods. And the industry know that, you know, and the studies showing, for example, in the US, um, people that visited pediatric institutions that had junk food on sale were four times more likely to purchase junk food when they left the hospital than people who never visited the hospital in the first place, right? So it's just, yeah, that's what they've done. But moving forward into the pandemic and, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I very early on then, you know, advised Matt Hancock and, um, and then I, I also uh, was one of the first Zuby to take two doses of the mRNA Pfizer vaccine. And again, coming from a perspective of someone that's been a campaigner on highlighting the harms and excesses of the drug industry over, the, over many years, I didn't, again, not throwing the baby out of the bathwater, I didn't expect or consider the possibility that a vaccine, one of the best you know, interventions that we've done in medicine, could cause any harm to the body. And I took two doses of it. And uh, I did it primarily not to protect myself, but I thought, again, falsely, we now know that was false, that it would protect my patients, I would prevent transmission. And of course, the situation evolved 
um, from 2021, early 2021. I even went to Good Morning Britain. I, I, you know, was there to tackle vaccine hesitancy, and I said, "Listen, people are rationally have rational concerns based upon what drug industry had done. There are some irrational concerns of things that didn't make sense to me, like microchips in the vaccine and that kind of stuff." And I just explained that for people to help people understand. But I said, "Look at traditional vaccines; are some of the safest we have uh, in terms of, you know, pharmacological intervention in the history of medicine." And um, and then the information evolved. Zubi, you know, over several months, um, my father, who's a general practitioner, honorary vice president of the British Medical Association, he suffered an unusual, um, an, an, an totally unexpected sudden cardiac death in July 2021. His post-mortem findings didn't make any sense. He had very severe narrowings in his arteries, which shouldn't have been there because we were monitoring his heart over years and he was very fine. He was fine. There was nothing wrong with him. He was a very fit guy. So something had changed relatively recently to cause this very rapid buildup of narrowings or plaques or in his heart arteries and I thought this is odd and then a several months later lots of bit different bits of data started to emerge to be that caught my attention and uh, essentially it suggested that the mRNA vaccines Pfizer Moderna was accelerating coronary artery disease and causing problems with the heart in a scale that we've never seen um, and then I decided to do my own critical analysis and review and publish in a medical journal because I thought this is this is um, not going to be an easy one to overcome because by that stage, you've got to remember, there was a huge indoctrination around the vaccines. There was something that we've never experienced before in terms of the coercion and the mandates. And, you know, there was even divisions created where, I mean, this is still the, the psychological operation behind it. The PR machinery was extraordinary. And coming from pharma, where they created this situation where people who were vaccinated were looking at people who were unvaccinated or led to feel towards them that they were, look at them with contempt. I mean, just to give you an example, Zubi, you, you would appreciate this, you know, it's coming from an ethnic minority background. The level of psychological... I personally received thousands of them. So uh, I've been on the receiving... <laughs> I was on the receiving yeah. end of much of this. So uh, I'm aware. No, but Zubi, just yeah, to give you an on. example here, there was a paper published in one of the psychology journals, if I'm not wrong, and I remember reading this and I thought, this is unbelievable, where they looked at the psychology of the people. So let's look at people who are pro-lockdown, pro-mask in general terms, right? Pro-vaccine. And their perception of people who weren't in the same camp as them on these issues. And they, they, they did some sort of analysis where they said that the, the feelings towards those people on the other side was worse than what a true racist feels towards immigrants. The level of contempt. Mm, so think what? about that was that level of, of, of division and polarization was extraordinary. Do you know, so when do you know I, what's when I, so sorry, sorry, sorry to sorry to jump in there. No. What, what's the thing is that doesn't surprise me because I saw it right. Like I, I literally saw it because even people who are they're on. A, fortunately, there aren't a lot of, uh, you know, hard, hardcore racists going around these days, but typically even people who may have some some racism or bigotry, they typically still, I mean, unless they're like ultra hardcore, they, they still typically are not actually trying to um, deny the rights of other people or have them potentially imprisoned for, uh, you know, being who or what they are. They're not advocating for segregation or not allowing people to use certain facilities, all of these, you know, pushing that people get fired, right? Even someone who is racist is not advocating 
the people who are of the race they don't like should lose their jobs or shouldn't have X. So I'm not surprised that these things measured worse because, uh, you know, I've, I have a very, very clear memory of, I, I would say it peaked in mid 20, early to mid 2021, I think is when the vitriol really peaked. And, yes. um, you know, I said it was going to happen before it started happening. And then even very, you know, major figures on TV and on the radio and even celebrities and certain musicians and actors, I mean, they made their thoughts very well known. And um, it was extraordinarily disturbing. And it's kind of weird how now, you know, we're, we're a year and a half past this and people are trying to pretend like none of this happened and they don't want to talk about it. And it's, uh, I have not forgotten any of it. But no, yeah, carry on. No, I, I know. And it's really important to understand what happened. Uh, so we never, this never happens again and why it happened. Um, but really in conclusion, Zuby, and we can expand as much as we'd like on this, um, the, what I discovered when I critically analyzed the data and tried to break things down in terms of benefits versus harms of the COVID mRNA vaccines is that the level of harm is like nothing we've ever seen before, specific to the cardiovascular system, causing sudden cardiac death, heart attacks, rhythm disturbances, that kind of thing, and also affecting other organ systems. But the benefits, I think there's a very good argument to be made that the, even from the very beginning, when the vaccine was approved from what we call the gold standard of evidence-based medicine, which is a double-blinded randomized controlled trial. Having said that, these are all industry-sponsored trials. When one, one reanalysis that has been done and, and published by very eminent scientists, this isn't some sort of blog somewhere or some sort of conspiracy theory. Uh, these are some of the best people in their field in the world who published in the journal Vaccine Peer Reviewed. And they were able to get some new data and reanalyze the original trials from Pfizer and Moderna. And what they found, Zuby, is that one was more likely to suffer a serious adverse effect from the vaccine than one was to be hospitalized with COVID during the original Wuhan strain. And that rate is at least one in 800 with serious adverse event. And for me, what that tells me is it's likely if the system was already in place to stop this, you know, to have better data transparency, we would have found out at the very beginning, Zuby, that this vaccine wasn't going to do uh, more good than heart was going to do the opposite. And it would have probably never been approved. Or if it was being going to be approved, it may have just been that, okay, we've identified that is, there's an overall benefit-harm um, ratio in favor of benefit in a very, very high-risk groups. But there's still a harm here, and we need to tell patients this before they take the vaccine. And that never happened. And that's where we are right now. And I'm actually just on a, you know, I'm on a campaign uh, and going around the world. I'm currently in South Africa. Uh, and I started this in the UK to get these vaccines suspended because, you know, and on a positive note, COVID isn't as bad as it was at the beginning. It's evolved into something which is more like the flu or a bad cold for the overall majority of people, even people who are older. There's a lot of natural immunity around. And, um, the, you know, this is a good time to stop. But people really need to know what's happened. People have lost loved ones. I lost my father almost certainly to a sudden cardiac death. I know at least six people in my extended social circle that have suffered sudden cardiac deaths because of the vaccine. None of these people had COVID. And this is ongoing, Zuby. And the longer the establishment turn a blind eye to this clear truth, the harder it's going to be to regain trust and the longer it's going to take. And it's a recipe for chaos. And we don't want that to happen, but there will be inevitably some fallout. But what we need to do is say, okay, let's all put our hands up. We're all part of this. There's a system failure that's been... Um, you know, getting worse over decades, probably also rooted in a certain neoliberal economic policies instigated by Reagan and Thatcher, probably with the best intentions, where it allowed these big, powerful corporations to get too much power. And then we have to address it as, at its root and move forward. And really, that's where we are at the moment. Yeah.
You know, I think this whole situation would have been very different if it were not for all the censorship and the chill that that created. Because from early 2020, I mean, through 2020, 2021, they were just suspending people and blocking and banning people left, right and center. Um, Actual doctors and medical professionals uh, journalists who dared to ask too many questions, just normal everyday citizens who were not down with the, the lockdowns and the masks or who had questions about the safety or efficacy of the vaccines or who just didn't want to take it right. The, the term is uh, you're not seeing it bandied around as much so, so much right now. But it, it's funny, my entire life prior to 2020, I had never been once called an anti-vaxxer in my life. Not once. 2021, 2022, I, I, I don't know how many times I had that term thrown at me. I saw that term being thrown at people who even uh, were, had advocated for the, for the vaccine, either vaccines in general or this particular one, um, but who didn't believe that it should be mandated and forced upon people or who maybe thought that it was only ideal for certain members of the population, but not for young people, not for children, certainly not for toddlers, and so on. And so there was this mass censorship, and then the weaponization of the language and all the social pressure and the blind groupthink, and then the outright propaganda and the coercion, threatening people's jobs, threatening people's livelihood, making people think that they'd never be allowed to travel again or step foot in a gym, a cinema, Uh, never be able to see some of their loved ones who lived in different countries or across in a different state, whatever it is. I mean, I'll I'll straight up say, I I think that I would be, I would not be surprised if, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, let me, let me not put a hard number on this, but I believe the majority of people who took these shots did not take it because they thought it was the best thing for their health. I think they took it because I think the majority of people took it for some combination of social pressure um, financial pressure, pressure on their jobs, threats against them, coercion. I think that first wave of people, I remember when it was, uh, you know, I was in the UK when it was, when it was rolled out and I had no, um, when it was just recommended and rolled out to the older population, the people who are actually genuinely at risk potentially from the virus itself. And there was no coercion and there was no weird uh, incentives or threats or whatever that that started all in 2021. I personally had no issue with the thing. I was just like, okay, if okay, that that makes sense. Right. If you offer it to the people who are at risk um, and, you know, you could even offer it to all adults. But, you know, those people who are at risk. okay, that makes sense. But then within a few months, it very quickly became okay. We've got everyone who's you know over fifty who wants it now. Okay, we're gonna go with the the young people. Now we're gonna go with the children. Now we're gonna start uh, making songs and hiring celebrities and influencers to to post about this. Now we're gonna start threatening people's jobs. Now we're gonna promote discrimination and this. And it just escalated and escalated and escalated. And ev- everyone, regardless of whether someone was, you know, anti-vax, pro-vaccine choice, pro-vax, whatever. It was like anyone who noticed this escalation or who spoke out against it or whatever became became the enemy. I mean, I, the amount of vitriol from 2020 to I mean, I, I still get some of it now, but it, it's more people are on my side now. But in, in 2020, 2020, it was 
it was crazy. Like it, it was just, it, it was like people were possessed by yeah. some type of, I, I just never, I'd never seen something like it in my life. Um, it's why I still, I still talk about it because I'm like, yo, this could not just be swept under the carpet and people pretend that they never said these things and this never happened and they didn't sure. um, reject their friends, their family members, their fellow citizens, ban people from coming to Christmas parties, stop people from doing this, get, I, I, I mean, I'm sure that surely across the world, like millions of people were probably fired, certainly hundreds of thousands lost their jobs for not wanting to go along with this. And now here we are and suddenly, Suddenly, it's okay to have these conversations, and suddenly, in the mainstream media, they're coming out and saying, "Oh, actually, natural immunity—that thing we told you was a conspiracy theory—it's—it's <laughs> uh, it's yeah. at least, if not more, effective than two shots of the vaccine, and so on." So, it's just—it's very weird. It's very strange. Yeah, Zuby, you're absolutely right. I agree with you entirely. I think "crazy" is an understatement. It's when you look at the roots of all of this, as I have done. Um, Criminal and psychopathic doesn't even go far enough to describe what happened. It, mm. It's just unbelievable. Um, and the censorship, you're absolutely right. I, um, 2021, towards the end of 2021, I realized there may be a link between the vaccine and heart problems. And I went on GB News and I talked about it and, it, you know, that interview went viral. But I posted it on LinkedIn. And within a week, I was permanently banned, no right of reply. And I thought, this is a bit odd. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, who funds Vink- who LinkedIn is, is um, you know, funded or created by Microsoft, linked to Microsoft. OK, Bill Gates, here we go. So the censorship was absolutely extraordinary. And uh, that was also around the same time that in our country, they had started to bring out the Secretary for Health had got up and basically said, we need to mandate the vaccine for healthcare workers. And I thought there's something really odd here. We're now getting data showing one, it doesn't stop transmission two, there's harms ha- happening. How can you mandate for healthcare workers? And I then helped, you know, I, I campaigned and managed to get on mainstream media, actually talking about my dad's, my dad's death because of an ambulance delay and then bringing in the, I think the interviews in BBC and Sky and stuff weren't expecting this. I said, listen, mm-hmm. by the way, this vaccine mandate is, is just unethical, unscientific. We need to overturn it. But to come back to your question, why did this happen? The only beneficiaries moving from just offering it to the people who are vulnerable, which should have been the beginning, should have been the case at the beginning, potentially, is the pharmaceutical industry through these mandates, you know, they have made a um, hundred billion, Pfizer, for example, made a hundred billion dollars in profit from this single crazy. pharmacological adventure, which is one of the worst in terms of efficacy. The most horrific in terms of side effects has become the most profitable. And that mm-hmm. is really a clear symptom of our system failure. And so many of these politicians own stock in these companies. I mean, the conflict of interest is so is is mind blowing to me. I was so confused how how more people couldn't couldn't see this and at least ask those questions and say, wait, is there not a conflict of interest here with your mayor, governor, prime minister, president who is pushing all of these policies and even creating mandates for something that they clearly stand to benefit to the tune of thousands, millions, potentially billions. Um, I believe that Big Pharma ha- is the, I think they have the most lobbyists out of all the different sectors in, in the USA when they you know are lobbying the congressmen and so on. Um, and it, it's just so, it's so obvious. I'll tell you the thing, I don't even want to make it political at all. But one of the things that I found even more surprising was that so many people on the so-called left who typically are, at least traditionally, are supposed to be more 
concerned around giant corporate uh, collusion with politicians and so on and uh, them profiting off of selling drugs. And they were pr more than I saw people on, on the right side of the aisle who's you know, tend to be more free market yeah. capitalist types. Yes, they, they, they were the ones who were riding for big pharma and, you know, putting team Pfizer in their profiles. And there were people who went as far as getting the, the, um, the, the Pfizer and Moderna tattoos or tattooing their vaccination cards and so on. And I was just like, what is it, it's such a yeah. huge inversion to me. Like, I, I'm not a yeah. lefty, like I, I'm big on no. capitalism, but uh, yeah. I, I, I myself recognize Okay, when it comes to things like big pharma, um, I mean, I would even say this is not this is not even free market capitalism because if you're mandating a product, let alone let alone a medical product, right? If you if if you mandate that um, everyone must own a Ford motor car, right? Yes. If you have a car, it has to be it has to be a Ford. Everyone must own a Ford. That's not free market capitalism. That's actually proper no. closer to that's closer to actual fascism by proper definition if the, if the government is working on behalf of the companies and creating the mandates and so on and then they're profiting off of it this is not even it's kind of the worst of worst of all worlds it's it's not um it's certainly not it, it's a form of crony capitalism or corporatism yes um yes. but it's certainly not a free market because if you just let left had a free market it would all be voluntary there would be no there would be no force there'd be no coercion yeah. there'd be no yeah. collusion with governments, it would no. just be, hey, look, okay, we have a product available. And yeah. if you want it here, it's available to you. This is how most this is actually how most medicines and most things are. If I need a medicine, I can go to Boots if I'm in the UK, or I can go to CVS or whatever. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I'm, I need to get some, I need to get some Lemsip, I need to get some ibuprofen, whatever. And I'm happy and willing sure. to pay for it voluntarily. I've never needed someone to try to force me to do something that genuinely I need or that's going to be good for my health. Yeah, 100% agree with you on that, Subi. So on that, I mean, even Adam Smith, who was one of the thought leaders behind the free market system, said that, you know, um, for markets function best when the payer and the transactor, know, transactor also know what they're getting, like, as in you want the full information. So that's another issue, 100%. Um, you know, I thought about this as well. So I, interestingly, I'm not political in the sense that because of my job as a public health advocate, I have friends all across the political spectrum and politicians I know, whether it's on the left or the right. Mm -hmm. My own, I would say, traditionally, I'm probably a little bit left of center. And I was trying to understand what's happened here with the left. And I think the first thing is, there is no real left anymore. A lot of the moderate lefts are people who have become also intertwined or influenced by the big corporations. So why is this information, I was trying to understand it, why are the people speaking out really on this and highlighting it tend to be coming from the right? Okay, yeah. whether it's Fox News in the UK or GB, uh, sorry, Fox News in the US or GB News in the UK or where, you know, and I think what happened here, and you've, I think you've nailed it, is amongst people on the right, there's a big ideology around personal responsibility and free choice. Mm. And I think where that, that usurped, you know, the big corporations that you'd normally think the right were, you know, closer to, that... Um, uh, suppression of people's free choice through these mandates, I think was enough. That that took precedent for people on the right, a lot of people on the right. And mm. they thought, hold on a minute, this is absolutely unacceptable. And that's my understanding at the moment that where I, where I think uh, most of the people who are actually more enlightened and part of my language would be calling out the bullshit of these big corporations are people coming from the right. Yeah.
It's interesting. I think another part of it could be um, could be the collective, the sort of individualistic versus more collective type mentality. I think because yes. it was framed, yeah. because it was framed as a health and safety issue, right? Safety is a very um, it's a very powerful but quite a nefarious word in the way that it's used these days, right? Because whenever they want to justify deplatforming someone or censoring someone banning a speaker at a university, forcing a mandate, forcing a mask mandate, forcing, it's all under the banner of safety, right? Oh, that person was harmful, yeah. right? You, you got banned from LinkedIn because you were, you were spreading harmful misinformation and disinformation. That's how they frame it. They always frame it as we're trying to protect the collective. And so yes. I think that naturally people on the left are more likely to buy into that sort of mentality because yeah. it's more collectivist. Yeah. And I think on the right with the more individualistic style of thinking and the desire for sort of liberty over everything, right? Even if you think yes. someone's making a bad decision, I do also think that played a key role because they managed to weaponize this harm and safety language to attack anyone who was, was dissident, right? If you are, you're asking a question or you don't want to take a shot or you don't want to wear a mask or you don't think people should be forced to, you're now attacking the, you're a threat to the collective, right? And that you must yes. be eliminated. You should be kicked off misinformation, disinformation. You're causing harm. I had people tell me that my tweets were getting people killed. People went as far as to say, to, to blame deaths on me, right? Because yeah. I was not pro lockdown because I, I spoke out against the lockdowns. I spoke out against the mask mandates. I spoke out against the vax mandates and I continue to speak out against all of it. And my position from the beginning has never been, oh, you shouldn't be allowed to stay home or shut your business if you don't want to, or you shouldn't be allowed to wear a mask, or you shouldn't be. No, it's just be, that should be up to you. You are, you are an individual. You have free choice. I'm very pro going to the gym. I'm very pro healthy nutrition. I'm not trying to create a gym mandate. In fact, if the government came and was trying to force people to go to the gym or trying to ban uh, soft drinks even, I would yeah. be the one standing against that, not because sure. I don't think people should go to the gym or because I think people should chug, you know, gallons and gallons of sugary drinks. But I'm like, look, you're you're an adult. I would not be in favor of a tobacco ban. I wouldn't be in favor. I've never smoked yeah. a cigarette in my life. I have no yeah. interest. I don't think anyone yeah. should smoke cigarettes. But yeah. if you're an adult and you want to smoke a cigarette, yeah, that's up to you. No, I, I get it, Zubi. And I think that's a really good point that you raise there because I'm also not against I'm a, uh, not for banning stuff. It doesn't work. Look at what prohibition did in the United States with alcohol, right? Things get underground. Uh, what I would say, and that's where we have to get a balance right, is what is then acceptable in terms of creating, I'm for creating environments that give people the best opportunity for their mental and physical health. That's it. Mm -hmm. And that still means you can, you know, um, people still smoke, right? There's been a massive reduction in smoking, you know, for example, public smoking bans. I think even it's interesting, most of the proponents against um, public smoking bans initially that, you know, you go to a restaurant and people are smoking. Now realize actually it was a good thing that we did, right? People can still go buy cigarettes if they want. It's not completely banned, but it's just kind of creating the environment so that, you know, we give people the best um, opportunity for good health. And you're right, it, you can't mandate that. Um, you can address the food industry, say, listen, you know, the default choice, we want to make the default choice for people in hospitals, wherever they go to be the healthy choice. But that does then mean cracking down on the food industry. And of course, if you know that deliberately engineering foods to get you addictive, Addictive. This is an interesting one, ethically. Addiction is the opposite of free will, right? So then that means government, then you have to have a discussion debate. Well, actually, do government need to come in, especially if we're getting 
kids hooked on sugary drinks and getting them addicted, it becomes very, very hard. So these are debates that need to be had. But you're absolutely right. I think all, all outright banning things doesn't work anyway. And that's not the way forward. No, I think the solution and the way forward, honestly, is just transparency and honestly, yeah. honesty and the free flow, the free flow of genuine information. My thing is just just give give people the information. Right. Because I, I, I get people who, you know, who are critics of mine and say, oh, well, well, you know, if you were in power, how would you have how would you have handled the pandemic? Transparency. Yes. Just be honest. Give people the true information. OK, look, this is the fatality rate in all these different demographics. Look, if you're under 20, it's a nothing burger unless you're extraordinarily unfortunate. Yeah. OK, if you're if you're 70 plus, especially if you have uh, certain conditions, especially if you're obese and so on. OK, maybe your death rate could be as high as 8, 10, 15 percent for certain for certain demographics. If you're in the middle, so on. Right. And you update yeah. the information as it goes. Yeah. Look, just we're just being transparent with it. This is what we know. This is what we don't know. And just give people the information and let them make their free choices. We do this with so many other things. Right. If you're a young person, statistically, you should be far more afraid of driving a car than you are afraid of the Rona, right? You should be more afraid of just do, doing so many other activities that people do. You have a greater chance of getting severely hurt or dying from all these other activities, even drinking, right? What, what, whatever it may be. But you just give people the information. And it, look, people are naturally self-preserving. This is the thing as well, is people are self-preserving. Uh, there are people who you can kill with a peanut. There's, a prob there's over a million people you can kill by, by feeding them peanuts, right? This doesn't mean that you, you ban peanuts and you ban peanut butter, but each person knows their situation and you act accordingly. If someone, is, if someone has an irrational fear of driving a car or getting into a car or getting on a plane, there's millions of people who are afraid to get on a plane because they're afraid of a plane crash. Those people should not be forced to get on a plane. Do I think that that's a rational fear given statistics and so on? No, no, I don't. But that's that's up to you. That's your choice to make. Right. None of us you know, people are not wicked. We don't want to uh, harm ourselves or put other people at unnecessary risk. Um, if you have a cold or a flu through through our whole lives, you've never needed a, a mandate from the government to tell you that, hey, if you have the flu, uh, don't go to the gym, right? Don't go to a party and start coughing and sneezing on every, you have common sense. You, you don't want to, if I know that I'm ill, if I know that I have a, I, I, even just a cold, yeah. I'm, I'm going to mostly stay at home. I'm going to take certain precautions because I don't want to go out and give my cold to other people. And, you know, sure, some people are going to be reckless. Some people are going to be genuinely selfish and not abide by these things. But Again, you, you can't just sort of legislate and legislate and create mandates and laws to, you know, elim eliminate every form of risk that exists. Because that's really what I think where I think it went haywire. It was like, yeah. it was like people forgot about the concept of life carrying risk, right? People were acting as if prior to 2020, nobody ever got sick. Nobody ever died. Yeah. Nobody ever yeah. transmitted it. I was like, we've been surrounded by viruses and bacteria pathogens every all the time. Every day of our lives, we're mingling with people, we're shaking hands, we're talking, we're hugging, we're, we're mixing in all these things. You know what? Sometimes you get a cold. <laughs> sometimes, you get a, yeah. sometimes you get a flu. Sometimes, you know, you're eating a bunch of different foods and all these. Sometimes, well, once in a while, you get food poisoning, right? Or you eat something that upsets your tummy. 
this is just this is life. This is being a human. Um, you don't want to put yourself at unnecessary risks. Of course, you don't want to um, create a situation mentally, physically, where your body is not in a good position to fight off these various diseases, which is why exercise and staying hydrated and eating a nutritious diet. That's why this is also important, not because it's going to mean you never, ever, ever get sick. But if you do get sick, you can fight it off better and you're less likely to get sick. Yeah, no, absolutely. Zobi, I think um, one of the problems that we had during the pandemic was this exaggerated fear, this pandemic of fear that was fueled by the media. And those numbers that you talk about, the risk are really important. So one survey in the United States showed, um, you know, early on in the pandemic that 50% of Americans surveyed adult Americans thought their risk of being hospitalized with COVID was 50% or one in two. Mm. Nothing could be further them the truth it was you know so, probably closer to one in a thousand and you know that sort of fear drove a lot of this behavior that was irrational and then when you've got this exaggerated level of fear then of course that inhibits one's ability to engage in critical thinking i'm absolutely 100 agreement with you we should have been much more clear and transparent and just saying listen this is the risk in the older groups the risk for example from covid and in, in kids going to john ionidas was he said even less than the flu there was a thousandfold gradient difference in risk. And that would have been a much better and a rational approach. And we would have caused less harm, I think, to the population mentally if we had broken down those numbers and made it very clear to them. But that unfortunately clearly is what, not what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's so interesting. It's just like, it, it's weird. I, I get, uh, I, I'm, I'm just remembering all of this stuff that played out over the last, over the last three years. And, and the thing that really struck me, particularly for us in the West, is that, our countries are supposed to be the bastion of freedom and liberty. And it just seemed like so much of the foundations and things that people would have claimed to believe in 2019, it all just went out the window. Suddenly people were okay with medical coercion, okay with um, things being forced on people, okay with segregation, okay with discrimination okay with i was just okay with even people I, there were people who were advocating violence um against people who you know for example wouldn't wear a mask or who who didn't want to take yeah. the shot there were there were people who thought that you should we go saw videos of people on planes with people like getting into fighting balls, right people people fighting oh. there were people who were saying you know you should be you should be jailed um yeah. if you don't and by the way Zuby, by the way we know the masks didn't do anything practically yep. useless. I almost got thrown off a plane, by the way, flying from San Diego to Chicago. Wait for it. During the, you know, once I'd realized everything was a mess for not putting my mask up in between sips of my coffee. Yeah. You know, the, the cabin crew, I said, by the way, I'm a doctor. I'll do what you say. But just so you know, you know, I said it politely. I said, again, I'm going to swear. I said, this is horse shit. Mm. Right. I said it politely. I explained the medicine behind it, but that's what effectively I was telling her. And then I got handed a piece of paper saying something like $30,000 fine if you don't wow. adhere, adhere to the rules. And the guy next to me who was sympathetic with what I was doing was a off-duty off cabin crew attendant. And he said to me, wow. He said, I didn't expect her to do that because you were actually very polite with her. Um, but what that means is the next thing is they informed the captain mm. and they will, they will land the plane. And I was like, wow, this is just, yeah. The, the indoctrination, yeah. the narrative. And let's go back to this. Let's just keep repeating it and letting people know. People were indoctrinated by a narrative that was being influenced by a psychopathic entity. I said this before when I went on Tucker Carlson. When 
Anthony Fauci said, trust the science, which, by the way, medicine has never been an exact science anyway, right? So that's unscientific as a statement. It constantly evolves. It's an applied science, a science of human beings. It's about informed consent. When he said trust the science, Anthony Fauci actually meant, not him deliberately, but this is what happened. He actually was saying, trust the psychopath, Zubi. Mm. And that is, well, we know that's not going to be a very good thing for people or society. And that's where we have to, we have to pick up those pieces. And we have to fight for, um, you know, fight for democracy, fight for informed choice, fight for transparency. And we're fighting for humanity here. Let's not underestimate the situation we're in right now. Unless we address it head on, this situation is only going to get worse. Because these entities, these psychopathic entities, they don't, don't voluntarily give up their power, right? They, it has to be taken from them and it has to go back to the people. That's what democracy is about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. I could, uh, this is one of those ones. I, I, we, we could talk for another, we could talk for a long time, but I want to be, I want to be respectful of your time, Asim. Um, how do you think that this is going to play out over the next few years? Well, I think that the people of the public are becoming more aware, Zuby. I think one of the markers for that is we've seen a massive disconnect now between certainly in, in many countries we're seeing that what the establishment are saying in terms of people asking to have for the boosters and vaccines is not happening on the ground. So things are shifting. Um, I think it has to play out in the best possible way. I'm hopeful. You know, ultimately the truth will redeem the world from hell. And we all have to be advocates for the truth and we have to be not afraid to speak out especially when people realize what's really happened. But then we also have to think about moving forward constructively. I don't think, I think accountability needs to be there for sure. But a lot of the people that were indoctrinated by this dogma, Zubi, are our friends and our brothers. I mean, families have been split over this, right? These are people who are intrinsically well-intentioned. I believe that most people want to do the right thing. I believe that most people are good and most people hate injustice. So I think we have to focus on the best components of our human nature and humanity but we have to fight for it and we have to be courageous and we have to be compassionate so i i would talk about compassionate courage um and if we don't do that i think we're heading in a very very dangerous place in a, a dangerous direction i don't think we can be passive and sit back because those powers that allowed the situation to occur in the first place are still still have that power and still have that control and they're not going to give it up easily Absolutely. And human nature and all the cognitive flaws that come with it, those don't change over time. So people need to be self-aware to make sure that they don't fall into these type of situations again. Dr. Asim Mahotra, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Um, I love what you're doing. I think you're a, you're a brilliant man. You're courageous. I think that if more people, I, I wish more doctors and more people in general had your level of boldness and intellectual honesty and willingness to speak up and ask these questions and seek to do what is right. I think if more people were like that, then uh, this whole situation would have never transpired to begin with. Um, and I just, yeah, everything would be better. So thank respect you, to you. No, this is, this is a team effort. No, thank you. This conversation has been um, very enlightening for me as well. And uh, we just have to keep fighting as a team to get, you know, get the world to a better place. So thank you so much for having me on. Brilliant. And where can people find and follow you online? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter as Dr. Seema Hotra. I do Instagram as Lifestyle Medicine Doctor because I'm very much a big proponent of healthy lifestyles. Um, yeah, that's basically it. I have a, I have a website, drseem.com, but you know I put a few blogs on there and I, I have a YouTube channel that I occasionally put stuff out on. But my main, um, ma main sort of um, area, which I spend more time on in social media, is on Twitter. Awesome. Thanks again for coming on the show. I appreciate you.
Thank you, mate. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame.